welcome to a special episode of our show, Herstory. On the rocks! With Katie and Allie. Normally, it'd be just Allie and I hanging out on a Thursday night, having cocktails and talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about history. We have a very special guest here with us today, Lydia Moland. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here with you. Lydia is a philosophy professor at Colby College in Maine and is here today to talk with us about her book, Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Happily, yes. So as you say, I teach philosophy at Colby College in Maine, and it's a little unusual for a philosopher to write a biography. (laughs) But uh, when I, um, it was in the, after the 2016 election, I just decided that it was time for me to turn my attention to women. And I was really curious as to what women had done in moments of moral peril in our country. And I have some expertise in 19th century history. And so I thought, well, what were women doing in the 19th century on that topic? And I thought of the Civil War. And then um, it, it was, I had a distant memory that women had been really important in the abolitionist movement. I decided to look into that. I went to the Schlesinger Library for the History of Women um, at Harvard. And I totally serendipitously happened upon this letter that just electrified me. I read it and it I felt like it was speaking directly to my moment. It was clearly written by somebody who was struggling with how to be politically engaged with her country. I got to the end of the letter. I saw the signature. I had never heard of her. Um, but I started reading about her and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. So I decided, well, maybe it's time um, for a a philosophical biography of her. She was a very philosophical thinker, and she used philosophy to fight the biggest evil that her generation confronted, which was slavery. So I'm, I'm still teaching philosophy. I'm still writing about philosophy, but I turned my attention to writing this biography the last couple of years, and that's how I find myself here with you today. That's so cool. I wonder what the philosophy is behind the fact that you guys share the same first name. I know. (laughs) Well, exactly. I mean, the the funny thing about that is that she didn't like her name. She did not like the name. No, she refused to use it. (laughs) She she chose the middle name Mariah. She was not given that at birth, but at a certain point in her life, she chose that name and she required everyone to call her Mariah and she signed her name L. Mariah Child. So I try not to take that personally, that yeah. she <laughs> uh, but she didn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So now that we have a little bit about you, a little bit about, I guess, should we call her Lydia or Mariah, you think? Oh, for Mariah, the- I think. Mariah? Yeah, yeah. All right. Perfect. The good side, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have to get into the cocktail we made for your book. Um, so yeah, it yeah. seemed like she was in kind of the Massachusetts, Boston area. And I thought about you know, what does an American radical kind of look like? And of course I thought about the Boston Tea Party. (laughs) Ah, Yes. So we made kind of a hot toddy kind of cocktail. So this is hot cinnamon tea, um, black tea with rum and a lavender lemon simple syrup to kind of give it that feminine Mariah, you know, flair. So Mm -hmm. gorgeous. (laughs) I love that. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) 
Oh, mm. and of course it's delicious. Yeah. And there were no <laughs> excessive taxes on the tea because yes. by this point, <laughs> by this point in American history. Okay. So let's dive into your book by talking a little bit about the setting and setting the scene for our listeners. The subject, as you said, is a name, a woman named L. Mariah Child. And where is she living in American history and what is her life like? Yes, great question. So she was born in 1802 in Medford, Massachusetts, which is just outside Boston. And she was born to a baker. So they lived a kind of decent middle class life for most of her growing up years. Her mother died early. She moved to Maine, actually not far from where I teach, uh, to live with a sister for a couple of years. And then she moved back to Boston where she totally improbably became a very successful novelist very early on. So at this point in American history, there were very few female authors. Being a female author was generally considered pretty risky. You were not marriageable if you were an author, for instance. Um, but she didn't care about that. And so she started writing novels. They were very successful. She wrote an extremely successful self-help book. It was also kind of a cookbook. There were no cocktails in it, but maybe <laughs> um, that, you know, sold out 12 times and was in everybody's kitchen. She also was writing for children and was editing a children's periodical. But then in 1830, so when she was in her late 20s, she converted to abolitionism, which at that point was an extremely radical political position, which claimed that all enslaved people in the South should be freed immediately, not gradually, mm -hmm. and without compensation to the people who enslaved them. So the, like the historian Kelly Carter Jackson has said that being an abolitionist in the 1830s was sort of like calling yourself a communist in the 1950s. Mm. Like it was a straight path to ostracism and to losing your job and your income. And, and that is in fact what happened to her. So in 1833, she published this very powerful book length, The Denunciation of Slavery, called An Appeal in Favor of That Class of Americans Called Africans. 19th century authors loved long titles. So that was her long title. Um, and it was a, it was an attack on the, the politics and the economics of slavery. It also had a chapter at the end that just kind of attacked Northerners for their racism and for their complicity in slavery. So she was very clear that Southern slavery would not survive without Northern support and Northern racism. So as you can imagine, this is not what her Boston readers wanted to hear, um, people who thought she was just this kind of mild-mannered children's author. Um, so she did indeed, her books stopped selling. She was kind of kicked out of Boston high society um, and then spent the rest of her life really in principled poverty, fighting not just slavery, but racial injustice in every way she knew how. Um, mm -hmm. So anyway, that's the sort of framework of the book, and that's sort of the kind of start that she had in her career. Um, since, if I could just say, um, since this is a Herstory um, podcast, I just want to say that one of the most fabulously painful parts of her story is when these super fierce female abolitionists um, got shut down by men mm -hmm. or they tried, the men tried to shut them down is the way I should put it. So there was still a very strong tradition 
that women should not speak in public and that they should not write on subjects like politics or economics or history. So once Child and her couple of female allies flouted those conventions, um, there were really a lot of more conservative men who just set out to stop them. And that caused an incredible amount of infighting and tension in the movement. Friendships splintered, people chose sides. Um, anyway, it, it, her life is a wonderful example of herstory writ large, too. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to mention that as part of the context of her life, that she was also allied with both with very powerful women, both black and white, who were trying very hard um, to do what they felt that they needed to be doing. And often men were not um, mm-hmm. allies in that. Yeah. And so you talked about how she kind of was splintering off from some of these um, men, obviously, but also we read a lot about abolitionist women and how sometimes there's a lot of splintering within those female groups because some people would say like, well, I think we should focus more on Native American rights too. You know, they're also being harmed and we should focus on these people. And some of the leaders would be like, hold on, <laughs> yeah. we can only focus on one thing. So like, don't talk about that. Did she face any of that within her kind of social activist groups? Definitely. Yeah. And that's a very perceptive just analysis of the way um, progressive movements often work. Right. Mm So and I always love that you say that women are a nuanced group. Right. (laughs) So they're not a monolith. So it's not like all women thought that slavery should be opposed in a certain way and not in another. And child herself was also very um, interested in and, and just convicted by Native American rights um, and early in her life had gotten very involved in that cause as well. Um, But I think she anyway thought that the most important thing to work on immediately was the eradication of slavery. And yes, there were definitely women who thought that women's issues should be addressed first or that Native American issues should be addressed first or that, you know, poverty should be addressed first or that class issues should be addressed first. And unfortunately, whenever there are those kinds of disagreements, people sometimes get their egos invested and then you get these kind of power struggles. And before you know it, one of the worst examples in my mind is there were one of the things they did, the abolitionist women did so successfully is they had a Christmas fair. It was like a fundraiser and they was, you know, had a bake sale and all of this. And after there was a split in the movement over one of these issues, they had competing Christmas fairs, mm. which is, <laughs> I, just, I just hate thinking about that, but, yeah. um, but it's, I think it's also understandable when you're under that kind of pressure from the outside of people who are trying to vilify you and stop you. It's no wonder that you're under enough pressure that you, that there's infighting. Yeah, mm, for sure. And it seems, unfortunately, that one of the things she's best known for is the song Over the River and Through the Woods, um, even though she did a lot bigger things yeah. in her life. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. I mean, I've had that song stuck in my head for about five years now. <laughs> <laughs> the meanest thing about writing this book. Yeah, that was just a poem that she wrote in the 1840s. Um, And someone else set it to music at a certain point. And I feel like there's not a school child in the United States who doesn't learn it. Mm -hmm. And I think for her, the irony of the fact that she wrote some of the most radical, scathing, (laughs) controversial critiques of her country 
but is best known for this kind of saccharine, sort of patriotic, like in a poem. The irony of that would not have been lost on her. She mm-hmm. knew that it was way too easy for Americans to kind of paper over the difficult things about our history and just want to feel good about rosy cheek cousins and, yeah. <laughs> you know, pumpkin pie. And yeah. The other thing I'll say about that, which I think is interesting, is she wrote that poem at a moment when she had essentially had to withdraw from the abolitionist movement for a while because things had become so contentious for her. So I, I think one of the things we learned from her life is that over a 50 year um, commitment to fighting slavery, um, there were times when she burned out and times when she would just kind of retreat and sometimes lose her. She separated from her husband at one of the, these points um, and so that in, in that moment, she went back to where she had started, part of which was at um, with with the children's poetry. And that's mm-hmm. that's what stuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I love your kind of st- story of discovery of her and this letter, especially because it was in a box from what I read that was filled with letters from very, very famous women that are household names now. And yet Mariah got lost why do you think that is there because there have been some women we've covered who we know were actively cut out of the history yes their names were stripped off of papers and they were chosen to be left out of the narrative and is that what happened with mariah are there other factors yeah i i i don't know of any particular cases of exactly that um mm-hmm. but i think there were a couple of things that happened at the end of her life that made it true that nobody knows who she was one is that she was very clear that Reconstruction had failed. So she got all the way through the Civil War. She was obviously ecstatic about emancipation, but she was also very disturbed by the fact that Lincoln had ordered it out of military necessity and not because the country had had a change of heart about the evil of slavery. Mm-hmm. And so she you know, accurately predicted that that kind of racial hatred would reappear in another form. And then when it did, she was not letting anyone feel good about the war being over. And I think I, it's not a good thing, but I think it's a fairly typical thing that your average northerner was like, look, we just fought this war. People died. We poured out our blood and treasure. Can you shut up about this for a minute? Um, and she didn't want to and she wouldn't. And that meant that unlike some abolitionists who really went out in triumph, um, she went out essentially saying, nope, not finished. We did not accomplish what I had hoped we would accomplish. And I think she had a kind of deep sense of failure around that, mm-hmm. such that when she died, she gave brutally Spartan instructions for her funeral. She didn't even want flowers. She didn't want journalists there. Uh, she was internationally famous She was essentially a household name, but she did not want accolades. She didn't want speeches. So if you contrast that to someone like William Lloyd Garrison, who was one of the most important white abolitionists, um, who was the person who converted her to abolitionism, actually, when he died, 1,500 people came to his funeral, flags flew at half-mast up and down the eastern seaboard, and then his children went to work making sure that his legacy was never forgotten. She didn't have children, but I think even if she had, her attitude was um, she didn't want to be a hero and she didn't want to be lionized. 
I think we have a lot, we white people like myself have a lot to learn from that, right? That she was aware of the danger that if white people got all the credit and got to be the heroes, the same kinds of prejudices and erasures um, would continue. But I also think, you know, the fact that she was a children's author also didn't help. You know, people were like, eh, how serious could she really be if she wrote for children? She wrote Over the River and Through the Woods. So I think there were a lot of reasons. Um, but it is stunning, really, that how well-known she was in her lifetime and the fact that almost no no one knows who she is now. Right, right. And I mean, you said you spent, you know, years kind of putting this together as you did that. How did your relationship to her change? How did you feel about her as a person? Were there moments when you were just like, oh, get over yourself? Or, you know, were you just like all on board with how, I mean, how brave she was and what she did? Yeah, uh, another wonderful question. I, yeah, there, a lot of the times I was just in awe. Like, mm -hmm. A lot of the times I would just be like, and then you did what? Yeah. <laughs> She would do things like put her body between abolitionist speakers and anti-abolitionist mobs. She wrote a two-volume history of women. She wrote a three-volume history of religion. She, you know, had all kinds of commitments. She, she and her husband had a beet farm for a while because <laughs> they were trying to grow sugar beets in order to undermine the plantation cane sugar trade. Mm -hmm. So actually, I don't know if you ever I let your guests think about edit. that. That's crazy. <laughs> I know it, and unfortunately, it failed. But mm -hmm. but if if I don't know if you ever let your guests edit the cocktails, but you might want to put like some beet juice or something Ooh, in that. Yeah, cocktail. let's that do that. Cool. It also might be awful, but yeah, um, <laughs> you never know. But I will admit that there were times. I would say there was a stretch of about seven years when she was deeply depressed. Um, she had essentially been kicked out of the abolitionist movement um, for being, as some of her allies said, too moderate, which is so hard to get your head around, but it's true. She had separated from her husband in part because of this failed beat experiment <laughs> that meant that they went bankrupt. Um, she had had a very intense and very puzzling relationship with a much younger man. I don't think it was a romantic relationship, but they clearly, I mean, I don't think it was a physically, I don't mm -hmm. think it was a sexual relationship, but I think they definitely loved each other. And then he married someone else. Um, and, and so there she was in her early forties kind of alone in New York and and really feeling like the cause that she loved had failed, her marriage had failed, her relationship with this young man had failed. And there, yeah, the, the letters from that period are hard to read. And after a while, they do feel a little like, you know, you're going to have to pick yourself up here and dust yourself off and get back in the fight. Mm. And she did. Um, and that was also a strange period in American history, the 1850s, when it was kind of like things were at a stalemate insofar as there were tensions around slavery, and but it didn't really look like um, emancipation was coming anytime soon. But then at the end of the 1850s with John Brown's raid and the beginning of the war, she totally reengages. And then she's just like a dynamo all the way through the Civil War. 
Um, but yeah, and I, I think there, I will say that there are sometimes also reading her letters where I just think, oh, I wish you hadn't said that. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I wish, <laughs> um, I wish you had seen that issue a little more clearly or been a little more open to, another. but honestly, um, compared even to many other people from that period that I have read about, she was on the right side of history way more often than almost anyone else I know. Yeah. Well, and we always say too, you know, that's the problem with pedestals is like nitpick everything that someone said, they're going to disappoint you in some sort of way, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's kind of the problem we have with a lot of historical figures, you know, and I would also, because you talked about letters and stuff. So were those your main sources? Uh, Did she also have journal entries? Like, what were you getting your hands on that was like really exciting to you? Yes, you're not going to believe this. Her letters are all still only collected on microfiche. (laughs) That's terrible. I know. That deserves a drink. Uh (laughs) I spent weeks and weeks and weeks in the Boston Athenaeum, which fortunately still has a microfiche machine, Mm. putting those little slips of paper in the little Mm -hmm. thingy and trying to line it up. And yeah, yeah, all of that just about um, destroying my eyesight, <laughs> but, and then, then saving them and then, you know, pr- processing them later. But that was for sure the best source for getting to know her. She was a prolific letter writer and she corresponded mm-hmm. you know, with anyone who was everyone in that period. And then there are a lot of wonderful histories of people who are adjacent to her and I was also very fortunate that there were two wonderful biographies of her written in the 1990s that were wonderful um, foundations for my work. Mm-hmm. And one of those biographers, who's a woman named Carolyn Karcher, also collected a couple of anthologies of her writing. So those are um, available. And also God Bless Internet Archive, <laughs> which has all of these 19th century books um, easily available, instantly available and that was especially helpful to me since a lot of the writing I, it was during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But I was still able to access many of those 19th century texts um, through the internet. That's yeah. awesome. So you're in the Northeast and she was in the Northeast. And even though it was during the pandemic, did you get a chance to like go anywhere or see any places that she would have existed physically? Yes. And I loved those opportunities. <laughs> so there, there's one not far from where I teach in Norridgewalk, Maine, where she was a teenager. Um, there are wonderful historical societies in Northampton, which is where she um, had this notorious beat experiment. <laughs> and those they were so helpful and so smart in the way they um, assisted me through all of that. And also the Wayland, Massachusetts Historical Society, that's where she spent the last couple of decades of her life. Um, and there's nothing like being in spaces where these people mm-hmm. were like there. I'm not going to say that you feel haunted, but there's something about just seeing the world from the point where they saw it that um, for me anyways, is very moving. So I, I treasured those. The, the other I'll mention is that there's a chapter in the book about Harriet Jacobs, mm-hmm. who was an enslaved woman in North Carolina who escaped and got to the North and child helped her edit her slave narrative, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Mm -hmm. And I also got to go to Edenton, North Carolina, where Harriet Jacobs was enslaved. Mm -hmm. And that I I can't recommend that highly enough as a way of just trying to um, get your head around what that landscape was like for a person enslaved there. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I read that book in college and it still haunts me to this day (laughs) because she was in that tiny confined space for like years. And I 
uh, just that whole situation. So mm-hmm. I am so excited to hear that they have a connection. That's mm-hmm. amazing. Yes. No. And they ended up being friends really. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Harriet Jacobs went on to start schools in for newly emancipated children in Virginia, um, child also supported her in that you know, helped raise money and publicize what she was doing. So it's a, it's a wonderful, it's a complicated story. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love to know too, so you're obviously a philosophy professor. Do you think that changed the way that you approached writing this biography? You know, do you think it kind of added something that maybe past authors have, I don't know, kind of missed out on? <laughs> well, it is. I think what I was able to bring to this was a real sensitivity to the moral issues that Mm -hmm. she faced. So a lot of my writing in philosophy has been on moral philosophy. I teach moral philosophy. So I think a lot about how we decide how to do the right thing and how often doing that is harder than we think it is or what kind of obstacles can get in our way. And so there are many places in the book where I just sort of stop and say, you know, this is how philosophers would talk about the argument that she's making to try to convince people that they have to stop supporting slavery. Mm-hmm. And um, that was, I think, a really interesting way for me anyway to to read her writings, to, to see that she was, anytime someone is asking a big questions, like what is justice and what is humanity and what is fairness like those are philosophical questions and they were clearly questions that haunted her Mm -hmm. so i think i was especially attuned to the moments when she was asking and trying to answer those sorts of questions Mm -hmm. awesome so can you tell our listeners where they can find you all the things you've written where can they find this book so that they can get a copy and then where can they keep up with things you write in the future Yes, thank you. So I think the best place to find the things that I've written is on my website, which is just LydiaMolin.com. And I have a section there. Um, I've published shorter pieces on Child in the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and Boston Globe. So um, if people just want little bite-sized pieces, that's where they are. I'm also on Twitter. Um, I I do various LMC, as I like to call her, <laughs> tweets occasionally. Um, and the book is in local bookstores now, and it's certainly on Amazon or anywhere else people get their books. Um, so if you are a person who loves that kind of topic or someone in your life is someone who loves strong women and racial justice and thinking about the 19th century and the Civil War, then I wrote this book for you. (laughs) Perfect. Well, that's great. Well, thank you again. We're so excited to, you know, talk to people who are adding to our kind of narrative, especially that time frame. Mm -hmm. you know, because I feel like people like Mariah get left out and it's um, exciting to see their lives being brought back into the forefront. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you for everything that you do to bring these stories to light and in such a fun and entertaining way. It's really lovely. Thank you. We we feel like <laughs> we're doing a bad job. Yeah. Like, oh, I think I drank too much that episode. So. <laughs> uh, we will forever be apologizing to Ruth Bader yes. Ginsburg <laughs> for that episode. <laughs> I don't think she minds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>